This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. The year is 1959, and we are talking about the Starship Troopers of its day. Oh, it's Douglas Sirk and the Imitation of Life, baby. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Unspooled. Hey, everybody, I am Paul Shear. Joined, as always, by Amy Nicholson. We talk about movies on this show. We talk about movies that you are supposed to see, that you're supposed to love. And we really do try to examine, are they really that good? Or do we just think they are? Or in the case of this movie, are they as bad as all the critics said at the time? In which case, no! Before we even get into that, I want to let everybody know that Unspooled has joined a fantasy movie league. You can sign up for it at Vulture. Just go to their uh, movie league. We are under the uh, the group Unspooled. So you can join our movie league, compete against Amy and I and our producers. It's a lot of fun. It's totally for free. We're just doing it because we wanted to do something fun. So we have that. We're doing it because we're competitive. Yes. Well, we're so competitive. We'll make a bet on it eventually. But Amy, I was fascinated by this movie because Steven Spielberg picked this as one of his top five films to relaunch uh, Turner Classic Movies. I'd never heard of it. And in watching the movie, I think I wouldn't have immediately recommended it. But now, doing the research, I'm kind of blown away at what is going on that I wasn't privy to. Yeah. If you like movies that look like some sort of typical dumb genre fair One Direction, and then you spin it around and you're like, oh, that is one of the meanest commentaries I've ever seen Hollywood ever get away with. If you are a Paul Verhoeven fan, if you like RoboCop, you are going to get something out of imitation of life. And forget about that. The true life story that kind of runs parallel with this. We have the makings of, you know, 
tabloid journalism to the extreme. We have murders. We have mafia people. We have a real life actress taking parts of her life and putting it in this movie. The spectacle of this movie. This is like a, a big deal film for the time. This is like, don't worry, darling, in the sense of all the little uh, tabloid speculation, but with full on murder. Oh, my goodness. This is a movie where the actresses involved have not stopped spilling the tea all the way up until when Juanita Moore is 94 years old and really talking some stuff on the TCM stage at at a live festival in front of Lana Turner's daughter. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Imitation of Life is an interesting movie, Amy. I normally recommend that you treat this podcast like a book club, right? You watch the movie, then we have this conversation. We continue the conversation online in the Discord. But in this case, if you've not seen this movie, I might recommend that you listen to us first and then watch the movie. I know that I have enjoyed details about this movie after doing my research that I think that this movie can be, or this podcast episode can be watched that way. I like that. And we're going to do our best to throw in tons of clips for that very, very reason to give you a feel of a movie that is my God, so over the top that it's almost hard to even understand what you're seeing. You know what, Amy, let's stop talking about it and let's just unspool it. The year is 1959, and Douglas Sirk is done with Hollywood. As he'd tell an interviewer later, I had outgrown this kind of picture-making, which was typical of Hollywood of the 50s and America society, too, which tolerated only the play that pleases, not the thing that disturbs the mind. I felt like a totally new Hollywood style would soon be in the making, and a Hollywood open to pictures like Easy Rider, but felt like I wasn't young enough anymore to wait it out. Fittingly, he ends his last Hollywood picture with a funeral. Not just any funeral, but the most strange and unnerving funeral ever put to film for a film that itself is strange and unnerving. A movie about a white woman and a black woman who team up to take care of their daughters and still manage to screw things up. From one angle, the movie looks like an awkwardly directed weepy. From another angle, it is a brutal attack on the stories that society tells us about what we should want and who we should be. It's basically Starship Troopers, but about women and ambition and romance and racism. And you can also read the movie as an attack on Hollywood itself. I mean, that's like literally right in the name. Imitation of Life. Douglas Sirk said he would have made the movie just for that title. But... None of this means that audiences at the time were like clued into the satire. They were way too caught up into the fact that like the lead of this movie, Lana Turner, one of the biggest stars in Hollywood for over two decades, had just witnessed her mobster boyfriend, Johnny Stimpanato, get fatally stabbed by her own daughter, Lana's 14-year-old girl, Cheryl. The mafia claimed that Cheryl was in love with her mom's man. That's not true. But The Imitation of Life is Lana's first movie back since she gave this testimony in court. Take a listen. I remember only better hearing my daughter sobbing. And now she's back in the public eye playing a character who sounds a bit like what people think of her. An ambitious, aging actress named Laura, whose teen daughter Susie, that's Sandra Dee, is in love with her boyfriend, played by John Gavin. But Oscar nominations go to Juanita Moore and Susan Koner as the 
other pair of leads, Annie, a self-sacrificing black housekeeper, and Sarah Jane, Annie's daughter who is determined to pass as white even if it means cutting off her own mother. Sarah Jane looks and acts like a bad girl who needs to learn a lesson, but she also seems like the only character who kind of sees the world as it is. When she tries to explain why it's important that her white boyfriend think she's white, Sandra Dee's Susie does not get it. A white boy? Me? But how do you think he'd feel or his folks with a black in-law? What do you think people would say where we'd live if they knew my mother? They'd spit at me. And my children. Sarah Jane, you know that's not true. It is. That's why he mustn't know her. I don't want anybody to know her. Imitation of Life is released on April 30th, 1959, and it is a massive hit. Zero thanks to critics who pretty much all panned it as an awkwardly directed weepy. The movie is seen at the time kind of like Green Book the year that it's released. You know, this like well-meaning, patronizing crowd pleaser. You know, certainly not great art. But then the 50s move into the 1960s, and French critics at Cahiers de Cinema plant their flag very firmly in Douglas Sirk, just like they had already done with like Howard Hawks, Alfred Hitchcock. And they say, hey, here is actually what this movie is about that all of you missed. After that point, Douglas Sirk is going to be embraced by new generations of filmmakers, the ones he was kind of predicting, people like John Waters and David Lynch. After them, Wong Kar Wai, Pedro Almodovar, Todd Haynes, Guillermo del Toro, this guy. Let's see, steak, steak, steak. Oh yeah, oh, the Douglas Sirk steaks. How that? How do you want that cooked? Run to a crisp or bloody as hell? Bloody as hell and oh yeah, look at this, vanilla coke. Today, not only has Imitation of Life been voted the 37th greatest American film ever made by the BBC, Steven Spielberg has chosen it as one of his top five picks that he's going to program on TCM. So what was in the zeitgeist that weekend of April 30th, 1959? It was a song by Frankie Avalon that pretty much confirms everything that Sarah Jane is afraid of. It's a ballad about how if Venus, the goddess of beauty, created the perfect 1950s girl, she'd be fair-skinned and sunshiny, and basically look a lot like Sandra Dee. Venus make her fair A lovely girl with sunlight in her hair And take the brightest stars up in the skies And place them in her eyes for me Amy, love that song, never heard of this movie. Honestly, not even really familiar with Douglas Sirk. I feel <gasps> like this is a giant hole in my cinema uh I don't know what it'd be a hole in, but there's a hole. There's a hole <laughs> in that hole. Your cinematic ozone layer. Yes, my, my ozone layer has been punctured. I, I oh, don't know so anything of this. Yes. This is like one of those things where like now that you know Cirque, all of these other movies that you've seen throughout your life are going to suddenly have one extra layer of meaning because he has been referenced over and over and over and over again in everything we've ever seen. But this is interesting because I do think in my research after watching the film, my appreciation for the film grew more. Watching it fresh as a newborn, not knowing anything, I side with the critics. I thought, yes, this is interesting. They're talking about race relations and the 50s, and that is something that I can respect for the time was very big. But the end of the movie is incredibly melodramatic, and it just felt to me like, okay, now maybe I've seen so many versions of this throughout my life that this one just felt to me on first glance exactly the way that most people watched it. 
I think the context makes this movie way more interesting. Yeah, exactly. Like the things that you're describing are these things that are there to make you feel a little unsettled, right? Something's not exactly right with what's happening. This just must be very over the top because I cannot wait to talk about that funeral because to me, that funeral scene at the end of this really cracks open everything. And you're like, this movie is absolutely fucking with us. Or as Douglas Sirk said later, very firmly, the funeral is an irony. But that kind of feeling that you're talking about, I think, starts right at the beginning of the film. Like, right in this very first scene where we have these two mothers meet on the beach. We already have this sense that, like, Lana Laura is maybe not a great mom because she's lost her daughter. It's the first thing we know about her. And when she meets this woman, when she meets Annie, Annie gives her this pitch to be her housekeeper that is insane. Sarah Jane's a lovely child. How long have you taken care of her? All her life. Oh, I wish I had someone to look after Susie. A maid to live in. Someone to take care of your little girl. A strong, healthy, settled-down woman who eats like a bird and doesn't care if she gets no time off and will work real cheap. <laughs> yes, if one exists. Ah, uh, someday. Why not today? I'm available. You? Me, Annie Johnson. You mean you'd consider leaving that lovely little girl? Oh, I wouldn't be leaving her. My baby goes where I go. Sarah Jane is your child? Yes, ma'am. It surprises most people. Sarah Jane favors a dead. He was practically white. He left before she was born. Seems to me, Miss Meredith, I'm just right for you. You wouldn't have to pay no wages. Just let me come and do for you. I mean, Paul, when you hear that speech, are you like, that's a reasonable thing to say? I definitely clocked it, but I didn't know how to feel about it because I think when I watch movies like this, I'm doing a lot of math. What was normal for the time? What's my perspective on it being from the world that I live in? So I have a hard time kind of pulling it all together. But yes, it is bizarre for this woman to offer her services for free to basically live in this house. Like she's like, you take care of me and I'll take care of you. Yeah, and I totally, totally, completely get what you're saying because you. this is not a movie that's coming in like, hey, it's me, I'm a satire. I think in my mind, I'm thinking about things like All About Eve or Sunset Boulevard, these movies that have a little bit of um, a bite to them because in the beginning, I'm thinking this is a movie about show business, which it is. It's about ambition. It's about career. It's about the sacrifices that you make. And to what end does that actually paint the rest of your life. I think that's one part of this movie. And I think I was expecting more of a edge to that, um, where this felt like it wasn't as playful or as snarky. It was very much presented like a drama. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. (laughs) 
I mean, the Starship Troopers parallels of it all are actually really fascinating because this is a movie where, after the fact, Douglas Sirk told interviewers that he did not tell the cast that he was actually having a laugh with their characters. He didn't. He never, ever, ever, ever told like Lana Turner that her character of this actress is supposed to be read as like unsympathetic, and he never said that to Sandra D either. He like sort of let them play these roles really sincerely because he felt like that's the affect he wanted. And so the effect is you get a movie where it's hard to tell where the joke stops and starts, like where right. the joke is even beginning. You know, you're in a full fledged bit. Like, I mean, I heard that even when he directed actors, he would say to them, how do you feel this character would play it? Knowing that, you know, here's a younger girl who's an actress playing a thing, playing into, I imagine also Lana Turner's story that we talked about. Like there are choices that they are going to make as humans with their own experience that I think he wants them to lean into because that's part of the joke, right? That's part of the trick that he wants. Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, in the original book and in the original movie of this that was made in like 1934 with Claudette Colbert, this character that Lana's playing isn't even an actress. She's like a woman who's really broke, a single mom who makes her fortune basically by like realizing the maid has a fantastic recipe for pancakes. And then she takes this pancake recipe and with the maid's kind of blessing, they package it, they turn it into basically like an Aunt Jemima kind of pancake I was going to say Aunt Jemima. Oh my they, gosh. Yeah, it's basically Aunt Jemima. I think it's called like Aunt Delilah's like a pancake recipe. And they build their fortune off of that. And Delilah herself is like, and you don't even have to pay me. And you're like, what is happening? Whoa, okay. Yeah. But in that version, like Claudette Colbert sneaks her away some money anyways. But here, yeah, like Douglas Sirk changes this so that the character is an actress. He changes her name. Her The character's name was not Laura. He changes it because Laura sounds a lot like Lana. Four letters, starts with an L, ends with an A. Like he's fucking with everybody. I do find it fascinating because, again, this is a movie that even if you look at the melodramatic aspects of it, it's dealing with, I think, some topics that are surprising. In a time where, in this year of 1959, you have North by Northwest, Some Like It Hot, Forner Blows, Ben-Hur. And this movie is about two women trying to raise daughters in a society that's racist and misogynistic. And I think it shows Lana Turner in a role not a lot of women at the time are shown in, which is like her ambition corrupts many things around her. Obviously, she can't find love. She has a interesting, fraught relationship with her daughter. That's really interesting to show a portrayal of a woman who can have it all, right? She's not perfect. And I think that even to this day, that's something that we're afraid to lean into. Yeah, and that the movie, I think, hammers home what her ambition means she has to give up, like, over and over and over again. I mean, there's that guy, like, John Gavin, who's sort of poking around the margins the whole time. He's kind of playing that same sort of, like, square jaw, do it for me, I think, version of, like, a Rock Hudson 1950s man. But he's, like, insisting over and over again that if she wants to be an actress, she cannot be with him. And they break up over this so many times. He wants me to come right over and pick up a script. I'm to audition tomorrow. And you're going down there? Well, of course. Even after what happened last time? I don't want you to go. Do you know what you're asking? Don't you realize what this could mean to me? I'm not asking you not to go down there, Laura. I'm telling you. And what makes you think you have that right? Because I love you. Isn't that enough? No, Steve, I'm sorry. Good night. 
And I got to say, watching this movie in 2023, it's kind of hard not to be on Lana's side, right? You're like, that guy doesn't want you to have a job? Screw that guy. Well, I think every now and then we have this insight to what it was really like versus what is the narrative that has been fed to us by TV and film over and over again. Because Lana Turner is someone who is incredibly smart. Obviously, she's involved in this insane scandal. But here, you know, as a business person, she's taking a small salary and working for 50% of the film's profits, which nets her like $2 million. Like, Yeah, that's like proto-Robert Downey Jr. stuff. <laughs> and like, she is this person. Or I think that as someone who grew up watching a lot of movies and a lot of like mainstream movies, and when you saw movies like this, you have one point of view of these times, the 50s, right? And this is something that, you know, to get this movie out, I, I, I'm, I'm amazed that anyone wanted to make this. Like, why would you want to make this? How could you even think this could be well-received? And I'm, and I'm very curious about why it was well-received by people, because is this too harsh or are we in that same story that we're always in, which is if you make something that is complex, that is interesting, that is of the moment, people will flock to it. We wrestle with that all the time. Well, do people really want to see that? Do they really want to see that story? Is that kind of what happened here? No, I wish it was. I wish it was. I think it's a lot more like, wow, that Lana Turner, I want to see her get into a fight with the daughter about what a bad mom she is. And I don't, I don't think there was like a lot of criticism about it, you know, because, oh, I'm very excited to talk about like the Lana Turner, Cheryl murder of it all. But I will say that like one thing that was already in the papers was, you know, we heard that little bit of Lana giving testimony, talking about seeing the stabbing for the first time. And then in a write-up of that, like the LA Times said, you know, was describing Cheryl, the daughter, and her relationship with her mom. And it's brutal. The, The LA Times says that Cheryl is, quote, a picture of the most terrible loneliness, that of the child alone in a well-meaning crowd seeking the mother of her imagination. Mm. The real mother is a hedonist without subtlety who is preoccupied with her design for living. Cheryl is not the juvenile delinquent. Lana is. And so those words are ringing in people's heads and you get scenes like this. Well, you give me credit for nothing. Yes, I'm ambitious, perhaps too ambitious, but it's been for your sake as well as mine. Isn't this house just a little bit nicer than a cold water flat? And your new horse? Aren't you just crazy yes, about it? but I And that closet of yours? Has all the dresses fit for the daughter of a famous star? Now, just a moment, young lady. It's only because of my ambition that you've had the best of everything. And that's a solid achievement that any mother can be proud of. And how about a mother's love? Love? But you've always had that. Yes, by telephone, by postcard, by magazine interviews. You've given me everything but yourself. I mean, to, if I mean, if you're like a movie audience who's like really into tabloids at this time, which everybody is, you're basically watching a documentary. You're watching like Drew Barrymore in the 90s playing bad girls. Like that is what this is. Right. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. I, And again, obviously something that Cirque knows and he's playing into, like he wants that on some level, right? Oh, for sure. And some of his quotes can sound a little bit catty where he is like, Lana had to play a bad actress and she did it very well. And you're like, what are you saying exactly? But at the same time, she feels like she has a good experience with him as a director. She was one of those actresses who was like known for her wardrobe. And so in this movie, he lets her wear 
literally a million dollars worth of jewels, literally so many jewels that there are two bodyguards on set every time she's wearing jewels to make sure that nothing bad happens. He dresses her so well. He treats her in the way that you're describing, like, how do you think this should go? Like a real actress, not like a prop. She says afterwards, like, he's the first person who made me feel like I was an actress. And so the fact that he was maybe sort of screwing with her is a little painful. It's a little painful. Well, but I also would say that it's a mixed bag because Ross Hunter, who produced this movie, is also someone who has a reputation for doing this, right? He's sending flowers and gifts to her dressing room every day. He has a limousine driver at her disposal. He has a music system installed in her dressing room. Like, he even hired someone to operate that music system, you know? So again, you're right. It's like they're real flowers on set, real jewelry. You know, it's all these things where I could see, now talking about this, Douglas Sirk going, oh, let me even play on the Hunter character by casting that actor in the movie. You know, like when she goes to meet with that agent and the way that he buys her clothes and basically he creates her. Like he gives, like whatever that relationship is, if it's for sex, if it's for connection, he basically makes her. And I think that he's watching that too, or at least playing into it. He has to be stealing a little bit from that. Yeah, I mean, you cannot listen to her scene with this agent and not think, right, 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 right. Here we are trying to talk about Me Too over 50 years ago. What's this got to do with acting? Nothing, but I'll show you how to realize your ambitions, if you do as I say. If the Dramatist Club wants to eat and sleep with you, you eat and sleep with them. If some producer with a hand as cold as a toad wants to do a painting of you in the nude, you'll accommodate him for a very small part. It's disgusting. It pays off. You're disgusting. Maybe I am. But let me assure you, once you get it made, you can be idealistic all of 10 seconds before you die. And you have to think, like Lana Turner herself, this is a woman who became famous when she was 16 years old. You know, Mm. she is the sweater girl. She's the girl who everybody said got discovered at Schwab's. It actually wasn't Schwab's. It was the place across the street from her high school. But she got discovered there, was immediately put in movies, uh, was famous as like this beauty from the time she was incredibly young. And was a little bit uncomfortable with that. I think she hated the nickname Sweater Girl. But there was this vibe around her. Is that basically just because of boobs? Oh, it's completely because of boobs. It's because like the very first movie she ever was in, she plays a girl who gets murdered, but she like opens the movie walking through this scene in a very long street scene where she's just walking in a tight sweater and bouncing all over the place. And so people are like, whoa. But because of that, she had, I think, this aura that was hard for her to shake of, Here's just some girl, right? Like her in real life, her dad had died in a gambling fight when she was nine years old. She did not come from like wealth and she was just a girl with great tits. And I think there was this idea around her that she doesn't deserve this. She's just some sort of like blue collar hussy, like who happens to have elevated herself above her station a little bit. Right. I don't know. She didn't get as much empathy, I think, from people as you might expect. I mean, she was married seven times. It was one of those sort of things. And there was just this tension with her in the audience, you know, almost like she had to wear a million dollars of jewels to be like, y'all, I deserve to be here. Is that a little bit like Elizabeth Taylor? I mean, that's later, I know. But like that same energy where Elizabeth Taylor is known for having multiple husbands and wearing big jewels and Cleopatra and people are so caught up in her relationships and who she's in a movie with and what are they saying? I mean, it feels like that she's the prototype for where we go and then where we continue to go. Yeah, it's almost like they're acting at similar times, but it doesn't happen to Elizabeth Taylor until she's older. Right. It's like they they put it on Lana when she was young, just immediately. Okay, good. 
And I feel like this is where the movie isn't a parody. And this is the thing that I'm wrestling with. It's like the drive of this movie and the drive of Lana Turner, I think is the drive of the great female actresses of this time. You know, no one ever asks a man what they're putting on hold, right? How do you balance, you know, being a mom and doing a movie? Like, that's a question that obviously is asked to the point where it's a it's comical now, like on a red carpet. They never ask a man that, like ask a man the same question. So in a way, while there are these heightened things, you would imagine that anyone that is a leading actress in that top 10 of this time are doing the exact same thing. And there's so many people who probably aren't even in the top 10 who are also doing the same thing, right? Just trying to get in, trying to get their foot through the door. Like that's just the reality of this profession. I think that that's what makes this more interesting than the book because the book, you know, the main character doesn't have any talent really. She kind of (laughs) just takes somebody else's good thing and then helps monetize it, right? So here she is worthy of something. She does have ambition. It's not the same ambition. You can tell that story in a more interesting way. And I think it makes it more dynamic. But I guess there's no there's no satire to that. It's like, this is the truth of what this world is like. And even at that point, I feel like it's pretty unvarnished. Yeah, and I feel like part of it is also that Douglas Sirk switched it from, you know, I'm just an ordinary woman who has an idea for a business, which is kind of a relatable aspiration to, right. I'm a movie star to make this character seem like somebody you couldn't identify with as much, to kind of take that idea of ambition and make it harder for the audience to root for her. And I think he sort of gives us signs too, where it's like, I think she's a good actress. People say she's a good actress, but we don't really see her act except for one time where she's definitely doing very, very badly. Is anybody home? Marjorie? Oh, Marjorie. Colonel, what are you doing in there? But Mr. Overmeyer, why aren't you in Duluth? Oh, Herbert, you too. No! No, no, Miss Meredith. I, I had such an issue with that moment. I'm like, oh, that's a comic moment. And she's like, you can't play it comic. And I was like, what is the truth to this moment? Because, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I love that she's like, I can't play comedy. It's not a comedic scene. Like, I could see it the other way, a dramatic scene that she made funny. But the dialogue and the way that it was, I was like, is that a comic scene? Like, I I don't know who's right. I don't know who I'm believing in. That's where I was like, like, there's further confusion to it. But maybe that's also part of the satire. Like, the director sees it as a comedy. She sees it as a drama. And yet there's, like, another person who agrees. Like, everyone can't agree on what this piece is. And there's all these kind of things that go through the movie like that. Like, well... You know, she doesn't need to rehearse because it's a movie. It's different, you know, or she like there's all these like little jabs at actors throughout, yeah. you know, I, I mean, how much fun is Douglas Stark having with that? Right. Like right. you're you're absolutely dead on. You're absolutely dead on. I love that point. I was thinking about it in the scene, like right after she's famous, where she's like, I don't want to do comedies anymore. And then Douglas Stark gets to have this little tiny bit of a riff on like comedy versus drama. I don't think I should do another comedy. No, no. Wait a minute. I've decided to do the new Stuart play. That? What part? Not the dull social worker with the high dreams and low heels. Yes. It's drama. No clothes, no sex. No fun. I know. But it's a great chance for for good acting. And that colored angle in it, it's absolutely controversial. What do you know about controversy? Nothing. I don't want to know. 
I only know it's a good script. They're not easy to find. The way that he talks in the scene about the colored angle, adding it to a project, and is it going to be artificial, feels like also him describing the movie he's making, which is like teetering all of these lines. I, I guess to kind of hammer home this like comparison between like him and Paul Verhoeven, their biographies are really similar. Both of these guys are not American. You know, both of these guys are coming to America with the eyes of Europe, seeing it like anthropologists. You know, I feel like if an American director had made a film like Imitation of Life, there's a way of me in the audience maybe holding my breath a little bit. Like, oh, is this just his ideal maybe of how he feels like America should go? Or God, if somebody made a movie like this today, you'd be like, are you just talking about Make America Great Again in like the 1950s and when you think everything was like a lot better? Yeah. Uh, but that's not at all how Douglas Sirk sees the world. You know, Paul Verhoeven is Dutch. He grows up during World War II. He sees a lot of violence and blood in the streets. He's steeped in this really uncomfortable world uh, as a child. Douglas Sirk has a similar background. Like he's from Germany. He has to move to Hollywood in the 1930s because like, his first wife that he had a kid with became a Nazi. His second wife was Jewish. Uh, and then his first wife got mad. And so like used the fact that his second wife was Jewish to keep him from ever seeing their son again. And so he has to leave Germany with his Jewish wife to keep her safe. And the kid that he's not able to stay with, the kid he leaves behind, a kind of element in this movie, grows up to become a Nazi child star who does wow. German propaganda films. And then his son gets drafted into the German army and dies in, in battle when he's a teenager. And so all of that is happening, you know, in Douglas Sirk, like this real pain of how the world works. And then as an artist, like this is a guy who grew up, you know, loving Shakespeare, loving Moliere, loving these classic plays, but realized early on he was going to have to sell out. You know, like when he was working in the theater, he was like, well, those aren't making money. I need to learn how to direct these popular comedies that people want to see. And so all of this time that he's like having Laura in this film talk about like popular comedies, people like them, nobody respects them. That's a world that he really, really knew. And so this whole swirl of emotions is kind of inside of him as he makes a film that I think is so cold, you know, like when people would tell him this movie was sentimental, he would always say, I don't even understand sentimentality. <laughs> So then I guess it is all like a big, a big joke. Like the ending of this movie, when I saw it, and I'm not going to talk about the funeral part, but the, the pure ending of this movie really felt like, well, that's why you got to listen to your mom. Like, you know, it's like, it was like, oh, all the, all the moms leaving the theater would be like, thank God my, you know, I have, you know, like, that's what it felt like to me. I mean, I think that is part of like the magic of of melodrama is like you set up these scenarios where everybody who goes to see a melodrama leaves and they're like, well, thank God that's not my life. Right. You know, like I, maybe I'm not a rich millionaire movie star, but at least my daughter doesn't hate me. Right. Like yeah. you're supposed to leave feeling like the world makes more sense. And that's why it's wild that he adds this extra layer where actually, if you think about it, the world makes even less sense. And what a great place to put it, Hollywood, which is a place that makes no sense, right? It will eat you up and spit you out. And I guess like one of the morals of the story is I worked so hard, so now I can actually finally not work, but it's too late. So it's it's also like, I guess it's a it's an indictment of of ambition, right? It's like, well, yeah, you'll get what you want, but you'll never be able to reclaim what you wanted to get it for. I mean, I think so. And I think that there are like a lot of movies that 
did this thing of like punishing the ambitious working woman. Right. But I think that's why I love that it doesn't actually ever seem entirely fair either. And it still feels kind of strange. I mean, I think sort of what he's working at here. I mean, even just thinking about the timing, like literally every time John Gavin shows up at her house to say like, hey, we should get back together. She immediately gets a phone call in that scene where she's like, actually, no, can we not? Right. Like it, it doesn't it doesn't even like pause it out at all. It's not even like gaming it out. It's just like, boom. Oh, you think you're going to back, get back together with the guy? You're not going to get back together with that guy. Well, now let's even take one step back. We looked at him in his past, but let's look at him at where he's at right now, which is I'm fed up with Hollywood. I'm fed up with movies. I'm fed up with the system. And I feel like people who leave Hollywood or people who start to do things on their own terms definitely the the sheen is gone. I was having a conversation with a friend the other day. I was like, part of this business, being in this world, is playing naive. Because we all understand like what we're going through, the lies, the white lies, the the little things that we all do. But if you were to focus on that, you'd be like, why am I doing this to myself, right? You just want to cut through the shit and be like, yes, I know what it is, but we all play a game. And I feel like what he's doing here, and again, I'm enjoying it more talking about it than watching it. He's just pulling back that curtain and going like, yeah, that these are all the, this, it sucks. The end result is it sucks. You have a mother who tried to do it right. You had a mother who uh, tried to provide and both of them messed up. Like there's, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Yeah. And I think that even extends to like this idea of like the future of women. You know, you're Sandra D's character. You believe in young marriage and falling in love with the older man who's going to be your protector. Well, that's not going to work out for you. And you're also Sarah Jane. You know, you're you're very aware of what the racial tensions are in America in 1959. And you keep trying to tell people like, I'm getting treated differently. And everyone's like, it's fine. Just go marry like a chauffeur and don't want much for your life. And she's like, that's not going to work for me either. But it doesn't work for her in any way. Cause you know, bumping and grinding at terrible nightclubs is also not going to give her a happy life. I mean, basically it's kind of like Douglas circus looking at the landscape of America And yeah, giving the Barbie monologue to everybody and saying like, here's what all of you think your life should be like, according to what society is telling you. Society is telling you to be famous. Society is telling you to be a good person. You're going to go to heaven and you're going to have a beautiful funeral. Society is telling you to like get married. Society is telling you, you know, that like being white will make your life easier because we live in an awful time and they all believe it and it doesn't matter. And it's still terrible. Like you can't win. You can't win. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. And we haven't really even gotten dove into the race part of it because there is this larger thing, which is there's a secret world, right? You have this rich 
actress who, you know, starts off poor, but then becomes rich, um, who is trying to provide and does provide and does that really well. And her daughter lives this kind of blessed life, but her daughter doesn't really connect with the mom because the mom's really not there. And then you have this other daughter who is trying to hide who she is, not because she doesn't love her mother, but because she knows how racist this world is and how she's going to be held back at every step of the way. And you look at these two girls who, when we first meet them, are in the same mental space and you start to see the this separation that the daughter of the actress stays young and airy and while the daughter of our maid her eyes are open she sees it and she in many ways is the one of the only people who can speak to the truth of the world no one else wants to look at that you know i think it goes back to what you said about when we first you know meet uh the the housekeeper she's like i'll work for free you know we're seeing this inequity but no one's really calling it out and she's the one who's like hello hello what are we doing this is not it's not right it's not fair but people don't it's too complicated for people to really get invested in because there's no solution to it and i think that that's like the really interesting thing about racer unlike green book it's not like black people and white people can get along they do get along in this movie but there are certain obstacles and roadblocks that society puts up that no matter where you come from no matter what you do the color of your skin will impede your progress and the embarrassment that she has when her mom comes to class and everything she like she sees the world for what it is and i feel like all these movies that we've talked about the melodramas they're like well if you really have a friend it's okay don't worry about it and this movie is like no by the way you're gonna kill your mom and you're gonna regret that that you blamed her for a movie like this it's like yeah yeah black people and white people can be friends and they are friends and they work together and they're they team up and but there's a, an equality that is always present. And I guess now, looking back at that first scene, it's like, well, there's there's a satire of it. You know, that first scene's like, I, I won't work for any money. It's like, wait, hold on. You know, that it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's brutal, isn't it? It's so brutal yeah. because you're right. The green book of the way this movie usually goes is like, but this person wound up happy, so it's okay, right? We did it all. We solved it. Did we solve it? We solved it. It's solved. You're like, what? No, no. We have not solved anything. Like yeah. the stories we tend to tell in Hollywood about race are really phony and they are truly the imitation of life. Yeah. You know, even in the way that like the theme song is talking about false creations. False creation, an imitation of life. I mean, and I just feel like it's crazy making in this movie when, you know, every single time that, you know, Sarah Jane, that the black daughter tries to have anybody acknowledge what is happening, nobody will really do it to her face. You know, there's that lovely scene with Juanita and and Delana where they're talking about it kind of behind her back, you know, that she's born to be hurt. Sarah Jane has to learn that the Lord must have had his reasons for making some of us white and some of us black. Jane doesn't want me with her. She says I'm not her friend. She says nobody's her friend. Oh, darling, she's upset right now, but she'll be better soon. So will you if you get back in bed. Come on. Don't worry, Annie. I'm sure you'll be able to explain things to her. I don't know. How do you explain to your child? She was born to be hurt. 
But every single time that she actually tries to be like, hey, this is what's going on. I'm going to, you know, make everybody comfortable by acknowledging the racist dynamic that I feel like is happening in this country. And am I your daughter or am I your maid? The lines in this house are really blurry. Like, is my mom your friend or is my mom your employee? It's hard to tell. We haven't really ever negotiated this throughout the entire fact of the movie. You know, like you asked me to serve a trade of shrimp to your guests. Are you asking me because you think of me as an extension of my mom? You know, you're a black housekeeper. Or are you asking me because I'm just in the kitchen? I don't know, but I'm going to interpret it this way. And when I do, everybody's going to get completely mad at me and tell me to never do it again. Bitch, Joel, a mess of crowdads, Miss Laura, for you and your friends. Well, that's quite a trick, Sarah Jane. Where did you learn it? Oh, no trick to tote, Miss Laura. I learned it from my mammy, and she learned it from old massa, for she belonged to you. I mean, she gets yelled at so harshly for that, where Alana's like, haven't we been nice to you? And she's like, well, yes, but like nobody will have the conversations she needs to have. Well, and I guess, I mean, you know, we'll talk about the ending. I mean, I think it plays into what we're talking about, which is the ending is this funeral that looks like a king or queen, like our president, right? For someone who society would never really look at because it's almost like this white woman saying, well, this person was important to me and everyone backs it up. Like that ending, like it's like, whoa, this is, this is like a state funeral. Well, yeah, except it's like, you know, not even Lana doing it. This is like Annie's dream. Annie has been working in this house for free, I guess, this whole time. Who knows? Maybe making a salary, maybe not making a salary. But any money that she has made is going to her funeral when she dies. And when that subplot emerges, it is so wild, right? You know, because like, yeah. I think you can watch this movie the whole time and be like, wow, Annie is a really nice person. She's very uh, generous. Uh, But she seems like a really nice person. And I feel like when the funeral stuff starts to emerge, it becomes a lot more creepy, her niceness. You're like, oh, you're really only focused on what your reward will be in the afterlife. Like you've kind of given up on having any sort of pleasure in this world because you think if you're this nice and this lovely and this generous and this giving, at least you're going to go to heaven. And then you're going to have a funeral that lets everybody know that you're going to heaven because you're very, very, very important. And that's really cold because when you think about it, this whole movie, we've basically almost never seen Annie out of this house. We've never seen Annie have any kind of a life. When Annie is like telling Lana for the first time that we see in the movie about her funeral, even though clearly Lana's character already knows about it, she's like, and my friends will come. And Lana's like, you have friends? I'm getting on. And that's the one thing I've always wanted to splurge on. I really want it elegant. Got it all written down the way I want it to be. And all the friends I'd like to have there. Never occurred to me that you had many friends. You never have any visit you. I know lots of people. Oh, hundreds. Really? I belong to the Baptist Church, and I belong to several lodges, too. I didn't know. <laughs> Miss Laura, you never asked. And that seat on its own is strange. Like, here's a woman living in your house. You don't know anything about her life, and it's just because you didn't ask. But where it still goes is that she's putting everything that she has into having a funeral that she will not get to enjoy. We never see her leave the house and have a good life early. We never see her live her life. We never see her do anything that isn't in the service of keeping other people happy. And then she has this gigantic funeral with four white horses and a giant band. And, you know, what does it matter? I guess is sort of how I felt when I watched that scene. It felt so cold. Like, what did you give up your whole life for? For some horses that you'll never get to hang out with? You'll never get to ride those horses? 
then take it back out to the title again, you know, this movie version of our lives that we are so used to ingesting, this sappy kind of 1950s story that we are told is the fairy tale is completely not even corrupting. It just destroys. It destroys you. And I think that that now I'm like, oh, wow, I'm really seeing it. But God damn, is it subtle? Like, you know, like, I mean, it's really like it's like, okay, because it does just present as this like very simple melodrama. But I I think it is the missive of an angry person in Hollywood who's like, you know what? All this shit that you eat is bullshit. Like it's all it's just you're eating dog food. Right. Your dream is to eat dog food. Do you realize that? Like, it's like that's kind of what it's saying. I guess I guess I just keep coming back to the word cold because this is a movie that feels like it runs really hot. You know, there's like big dramatic strings, you know, starting from the introduction. But when you look at every single thing happening in every single scene, it just makes you feel like, what are we doing on this planet? We were talking even last week about like Karate Kid and this like trope of, you know, how do we know when we have a character, you know, who is just there to be sort of the magical ethnic minority figure there to like help along everybody's journey. And there's definitely a way of looking at this movie dead on where you just sort of accept that even about like the Juanita Moore character. Oh, she's just here to make everybody's dream happy. She's just this magical character making everyone's life better. And isn't she sacrificial? And it just feeds it to you. It just kind of shoves it down your throat and to the, to the point where you're like, this is getting sickening. I mean, like Annie on her deathbed, this, you know, she's been dying for basically like the whole second half of this movie. She gives her like big deathbed speech. She's talking like so sadly about everything she wants to give away, still not saying anything about herself except her own funeral. I'd like to be standing with the lambs and not with the goats on Judgment Day. And my funeral, Mr. Steve, he'll find what I want in the drawer over there. Got it, Annie. I want to go the way I planned, especially the four white horses in a band playing. But then when I stopped and thought about it later, I was like, hold up. You want to spend all of your money on this giant funeral, and then whatever's left you're going to give to your daughter who's like dancing in nightclubs and is really poor and could use your help? What if you just like didn't have a funeral like that? And helped your daughter out while she was alive. Well, exactly, right? Like, isn't this isn't this the energy of like this grand scheme, this showing of something, but actually not doing anything? That's I think also something that people would argue is very much a Hollywood point of view. You want to be seen for doing something instead of actually do like where that money could have that money could help so many people, but it's so much better to show that you want to do this thing. Right? It's all image. And it's like hard to even get your head straight to feel that way because it's all so overwhelming and emotional. I mean, you've got Mahalia Jackson singing right here. I'm going 
I mean, we're talking about a person who like sang for JFK's inauguration. We're talking about a person who sang at Martin Luther King's funeral. All of these things have yet to pass. Uh, They haven't happened yet. And I think when you watch it now, I think it's a good reminder that this is taking place before the civil rights era. The Montgomery bus boycott had just happened a couple of years ago. But then if there's another constant that's really happening in interviews with Douglas Sirk afterwards, he's like, you need to know this movie came out before we even had the phrase, the concept, the rallying cry, black is beautiful. At this time, that had not happened yet. You know, there was right. no way for a young woman like Sarah Jane, as she is in this movie, to kind of have a, have a community. Can I ask you a question that I'm I'm nervous to ask, but I'll just ask it regardless. I'll boldly ask: Is this a situation where we're looking at somebody like Natalie Wood in West Side Story, where I'm like, oh, she's supposed to be playing a person of a slightly darker skin color than she actually is? I, I feel like sometimes we've talked about this in other movies. They will paint a white person a different shade to be like, oh, well, you are now an Arab and you are this. And I couldn't quite tell. I was like, okay, I'm looking at her. Are they amplifying her? Because obviously she's she's Mexican, you know, and, and I will say that there was a lot of debate about this, right? There's a lot of interesting things because it was criticized. You know, her mother is Mexican. Her father was Czech Jewish uh, immigrant. Um, but also Natalie Wood was also considered for this part. Um, so I was trying to understand like what, what am I trying to look at here? Is this is this supposed to be somebody who passes for white, trying to pass for white, or is a light-skinned black person? I couldn't quite understand that. I feel like you're plunging into something that I think is one of the really interesting things to try to piece apart, too, which is like, you know, when this movie was made in 1934, they did cast a black actress for this role. Yeah, Freddie Washington, here she actually is, you know, giving like her version of one of the big scenes. I want to go away. And you mustn't see me, own me, or claim me, or anything. I mean, even if you pass me on the street, you'll have to pass me by. Oh, no, Paola. Oh, I know it's terrible of me, Miss B. But you don't know what it is to look white and be black. You don't know. I can't go on this way any longer. And I found for this movie, the original press notes, you know, talking about like the casting of it written at this time, written at this time, straightforward, focusing a lot on like how much money they spent on Lana Turner's jewels. And they say in the press notes that they auditioned 100 black actresses for this role and didn't cast any of them. And they only auditioned five non-black actresses and just happened to pick this one. And you're absolutely right. Like, There was a lot of concern that this movie was, you know, from like the white producers of it was going to be like banned, avoided, blacklisted by black audiences because they cast like a non-black person in a black role, you know, very understandably. And I almost wonder if this is like Douglas Sirk playing one extra trick into it, one extra twist that still feels like unsettling right now, where he's like, I'm going to talk about race in America and how everybody's losing their mind over race. And it doesn't really even seem to make sense. And like the way you guys talk about race is so wild that I'm going to like shove it in your face by casting a non-black person as a black person to get you to even understand that your construct of race in this country is screwy. You know, is this him kind of being like, what is this one drop rule you guys are talking about even? Is that like him kind of leaning into it? Like what is black if a skin color isn't black? Like, what is black if you don't look black? Which is like a huge conversation in this movie. 
I mean, it's a conversation that, like, this character keeps trying to have over and over and over again. The three wise men saw a beautiful bright star in the sky. The star of Jesus Bethlehem. white or black? It doesn't matter. He's the way you imagine it. But Annie said he was a real man. He's not a pretend man. He was real. He is real. Then what color was he? He was like me. White. And so I don't even know if I understand Douglas Sirk's intentions yet, where it's like he's having an actress who is not black look into the mirror and say, I'm not black. And you're like, you're right. You're right. right. She's not black. Like, is it adding to the surreality of it? Is it adding to like the snark and the comment? And it's not like Susan Conner was a big star at this point. It wasn't like, oh, we have to get Susan Conner. She's cool. She was working her way up in the industry. You know, she gets an uh, an Oscar supporting nomination for this. She gets a Golden Globe nomination for this. She's nominated against Juanita. She feels like they canceled each other out. But it wasn't like it was like hinged on her the way that like Sandra D being a star mattered. So right. it it feels it's deliberate and I don't understand it is basically what I'm wrestling with. I guess we're saying we will never know. I guess not. I mean, you know who might know? Who? I wonder if her children know. Like, because you know who her kids are. No. Susan Conner, her sons are Paul and Chris Whites. Wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I hadn't put it together, but like they would always talk about, especially when Chris Whites was doing the Twilight movies, mm-hmm. that like his grandmother, Lupita Tovar, was a Mexican actress who starred in like the the Spanish language Dracula, the one that they shot on the same set as Bella Lugosi. I don't know if you've heard those stories where like in the daytime, they shot the English version at the nighttime, they shot the Spanish language version and it was no. their grandmother who starred in it. I always knew that. I never thought about the generation in between. And that's that's her. That's Susan. These are conversations that I don't think people want to have. And I wonder if Cirque is saying, I know you want to see Lana Turner, but I'm going to force you to also, on some level, have this dialogue with yourself. Now, I think probably people walk out of there just going like, oh, Mother's jobs are never done, you know, um, but I also think that he is forcing a conversation like because he's saying racism is rampant. It's societal. It's never going to change. It's there's no one that can stop it from being that way. And, you know, and the only way that she's going to get ahead is by kind of forging her own life away from her family so she can at least be not pitied or a part of a system that she doesn't want to really be in. I think that that's really interesting. I think that's a really good theory, honestly, that like Cirque is using Lana Turner and the scandal. And I definitely want to talk a little bit more about the Johnny Stampinano murder, but that he's like using it to get people in the seats. And you know, the first half of this movie is all like Lana, 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 Lana. And then in the last 20 minutes, you're realizing, oh no, this is not about Lana at all. And whenever Lana and Sandra D start being like, we're both in love with Steve. You know, like Annie's like on her deathbed dying in front of you. And you're like, but what are we going to do about Steve? And Annie just looks like, I'm tired. She says I'm tired. She's like, I'm done here. I don't want to deal with you guys anymore. And she makes them look really ridiculous. Honestly, she makes their problems look ridiculous. And it, yeah, so it's almost like a, it's like a card game, a shell game. You came for this movie, but now you're getting this movie. And I mean, I just feel like melodrama gets a bad rap because people are like, Oh, it made me cry. It's a weepy. It's manipulative. But like, that is such a great power of art. You get ideas in people's heads in this candy coating. 
But can you also argue that, like, there's a difference between, like, drama and, like, a movie that makes me cry isn't a melodrama. Like, I feel like what I see often is, like, it feels manipulative where, uh, well, I guess people would say that. Like, The Notebook. There's a difference between The note. Is The Notebook melodrama? I guess maybe it is. No, don't insult. The- Wait. Oh, my gosh. I just even heard my own reaction. I immediately was like, that's an insult. But then why? I want to try to defend the idea that it doesn't have to be. Melodrama is very much like commedia dell'arte, right? It's like this idea of like, it's big emotions. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be about the realism. Everything is heightened. Everything is big. And that's how we kind of, I think, came to understand theater. It's it's punch and judy. And I think that we people feel like, well, we've gone past that. We don't need that anymore. But I would argue, and you know that I'm going to come for this movie any which way I can, like Jackass is a version of a simple version of, like, we have elevated our comedy from that kind of stuff, but at the same time, it's really fulfilling to watch, right? And melodrama is a callback to just, it's it's sweeping emotions, it's big music. We're just in it to be like, we just want to feel, goddammit, let us feel, let us laugh. Like, you know, we don't want to think. It's the difference between, and no offense, it's the difference between, like, a uh, Big Bang Theory, 30 Rock, and uh, I would say The Bear, they're all considered half-hour comedies. They're very different. You know what I'm saying? It's like, but I think that one of them is like, oh, I'll just pop on Big Bang Theory because I can just kind of ease into it. I don't have to pay attention to it. And I think that melodrama does the same thing. It's like, I just want to watch a dirty, messy, she loves him, she's upset, she kills herself, it's Romeo and Juliet. It's, it's just bare bones, like meat and potatoes, give me a pizza pizza kind of movie. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think about why do we decide that some types of art are respectable and some aren't, right? Why are we just like, this is good. This is an Oscar movie. This is what an Oscar movie looks like. And this one is not. There's a pattern to it, but it always feels a little bit arbitrary. It's like, okay, I'm Liam Neeson. I'm having problems with my daughter. She got kidnapped. I'm going to fight my way back. Well, that's just a reasonable movie. And I can really relate to him. And boy, what a tough guy. You know, like, that's respectable. But oh no, I'm like Lana Turner and my daughter won't talk to me and she's mad at me and she's in love with somebody else and I'm going to cry about it. Like, oh, well, you're just being ridiculous now. Settle down, lady. That's too emotional. Yeah. I mean, why is it okay to punch your way through your emotions and not to cry your way through emotions? And the crying in this movie, by the way, is just like intense because, I mean, they start filming this movie four months after Johnny Stompanato's murder. So talk to me about I know you've been chomping at the bit. So give me give me what you got. I know you were up late last night <laughs> figuring out Johnny Stompanato. I want to hear about Johnny Stompanato. I mean, it's just once you start like reading about this and reading about this and reading about this, like you just can't stop. Like there's always more articles and always more books. Uh, but basically, I'm going to give you Lana's version of the events with the caveat that this is Lana's version of the events. Okay. Fair enough. That's from like her own autobiography from like 1982. So Lana's version of the events was that, you know, she was making a movie. uh, She started to get like just elaborate flowers and phone calls nonstop from this guy. And like, he was giving his name as Johnny Steele. And it was like weeks and weeks and weeks of this like attention. And she finally sees Johnny Steele. She thinks he's fine. She's not like super into him, Mm -hmm. she says, but like they're dating a little bit. She kind of likes him. And then she finds out that his name is not Johnny Steele, that he's actually a mobster named Johnny Stompanato. And he's lied to her about his name. And from this point on for like the next 
you know, several months to a year, she basically is like, I've been trying to break up with this guy and he won't let me. You know, I tried to like ditch him and go to Mexico. He showed up at the airport and had photographers with him. You know, I try to like leave him and go out with my friends. When I get home, he's in my house. You know, he's, he's like threading this line between like boyfriend and stalker. And she's sort of also admitting that she has a hard time defending her boundaries, you know, at this point, like the attention's really flattering, but also he will show up on her sets with a gun and like, you know, Sean Connery will have to fight him off at one point she says, and they do seem to have found, although they said they destroyed the negatives when they found it, that he would drugged her and like took naked pictures of her without her consent. And he was like planning on using it for blackmail. And he actually did kind of have a pattern in Hollywood of being like an extortionist. So yeah, not a great guy. Basically this all comes to a head when like, Lana is nominated for an Oscar for Peyton Place, goes to the Oscars, also presents, is very much like, I don't want you to come with me, Johnny. Like, I don't want you there. I don't want to be associated with you. We're over, we're over, we're over. She comes home that night after the Oscars and he's in her house again and he like really beats her up. And then a week later, he's back in her house and he's like threatening to, you know, kill her and attack her and kill her daughter. And as she puts it, you know, she's like kicking him out. He's grabbing like his clothes from a hanger and he's like being pushed out the door basically by her. Her daughter's on the other side of the door kind of knocking like, mom, come out, mom, come out, mom, come out. I need to talk to you. You know, her daughter being 14 at this time. And when she opens the door and kind of Johnny goes through it holding these clothes, uh, it looks like Cheryl punches him in the stomach, but it's actually a knife and he dies immediately. Like he actually Whoa. dies with one stab to the heart. You know, and the idea is that Cheryl thought that his hand was raised because he was hitting her. Cheryl was acting in self-defense. And that clip you heard from like the inquest was like her describing seeing him dead and realizing he was dead. I mean, to die from one stab is pretty nuts, but that is actually what happened. He died from one stab. So then (laughs) uh, what happens is like she does this inquest. And at the inquest, a mobster stands up, a mobster friend of his is like in the courtroom and he starts yelling, you need to let me testify. And his theory is that Lana actually killed him and she had her daughter take the rap for it because she figured her daughter would look even more innocent and it wouldn't hurt her own career and that her daughter would be fine, Um, which is not true. Like her daughter was 14 and got off really easily. Well, you know, she had to like spend some time in a reformatory and go live with her grandma. It's actually not that easy. Uh, But yes. So that's the theory that the mob has is Lana did it and her daughter is like the front. And like she ends up getting stewed for like almost a million dollars by like Johnny Stambanato's ex-wife who kind of believes in this and they settle for like $20,000. All of that is happening. Um, And so it's only four months after he's even stabbed that she starts shooting this movie. And so because of that, like in this movie, basically every time she's like bursting into tears and crying, that's kind of real. Like she can't stop crying in the making of this film. You know, all those tears that are like running down her face in the funeral scene, like she couldn't even handle sitting there at that point. You know, to be at a funeral was like really overwhelming. And like she had to run to her makeup trailer because she just couldn't stop. And her makeup trailer did the thing that like people did back then. She slapped her in the face and said, you know, snap out of it. You've got to get back in there. And so this drama is why this winds up being like Lana's, you know, biggest financial hit of all time as well. Like everybody wanted to see it. This was like Universal's number one film. It was like, this was major. 
the story is like endlessly interesting because like she and Cheryl then go on to have this really complicated relationship. Like, right. but Cheryl also hates this movie because a lot of the details of the relationship here between like this fictional actress and her fictional daughter, who is basically the same age are kind of the same as their life. Like she's like, this pink bedroom looks like my bedroom. You shot this graduation scene at my own junior high school. Why did you have well, to do that's that? that's wild, this, like, yeah. yeah. Why do you think she makes this movie then? I mean- Like, why do you do it? Do you do it because she sees the payday? She gets to be the highest paid actress in Hollywood. Does she just use it to manipulate, you know? I mean, who knows? And then who even knows how much of it was like conscious or subconscious? I mean, Amy, it's it's right there. It's like, it's not even, it's like they're shooting in the same school. There's, you know, there's not a stabbing, you know, it's, but maybe that's also because, you know, I listened to those Chris McQuarrie interviews on Empire podcast where they're like three hours. And I think they've done like 12 hours so far about Mission Impossible 7. And they're great. And the way that Chris McQuarrie talks about directing those movies I know weird tangent I'm getting into is like they kind of cast around the people, like the specifics and the things become very like you couldn't just slot somebody else in. And I wonder if Cirque is doing that. Like, oh, yeah, you should give him a horse. That's a great idea, Lana. Like, you know, it's like, you know, are these specifics are things that are added in or are these things that were in the script, you know, in the beginning? I don't know. I mean, it's definitely tailored. I think you're right. And I wonder, I mean, it's strange because like Lana and Cheryl would sort of go on to be weirdly open about all of this, like talking about it on television. Both of them like would go on, you know, talk shows in like the 80s and 90s and really be open about it. I mean, like this is I found like just a really wild episode of Donahue last night at four in the morning. Oh, my God. uh, Where it's like Cheryl is on it along with Christina Crawford, Joan Crawford's daughter. And they're just talking about what it's like to go up in Hollywood. And it's absolutely wild. But like here's Cheryl just talking about like how how her childhood felt. You could not kiss your mother while she was working because of the makeup problem. Right. And the hair. And you of course, remember- I as a child took that to mean I was never to touch her. You know, it was off limits. Your mother was gone all week long when you were uh, filming. She was a working mother. You know, they, they were unusual you in got those up. days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you also tell your reader about the agony of having been sent consistently to bed early. Yes. 6.30? Yes. For your beauty rest? Yes. <laughs> Do you see that now as let's get rid of this? No. You don't? No. You know, it was a different world then. And my mother, for all her faults, and she admits them herself, she did her best. You know, she really tried to do her best. And then when the audience starts asking these women questions, Donahue makes probably the worst joke ever. Uh, backstory. Cheryl was like out of the closet and like she had a, she was like, you know, with the same woman for decades and okay. decades and decades, uh, which also kind of adds like the, she definitely wasn't in love with Johnny Sabonato. But basically, somebody's like, what was it like to come out of the closet? And he goes, with a knife? And you're just like, what the fuck? Oh, God. Donahue, my gosh. What a, well, you know what? Wow. No wonder he was number one in daytime. Yikes. Do you want to do this experiment in like, you can play Robert Orsborn and I will say her lines? I will just say, as setup, Cheryl was apparently at Imitation of Life when it started left because she did not like watching that movie for the reasons that we've just discussed and thankfully missed this part, which is like Juanita Moore, 94 years old, not giving a fuck anymore, not being very nice to Cheryl. And Robert Osborne is basically saying, well, didn't Lana and Cheryl become close as the years go on? And Juanita goes, not that close. Well, her daughter would disagree with that. Her daughter was tall. Still is. And Lana was the opposite. You know, she was petite. 
I know that her daughter was very displeased with the way she looked because we talked about it. She said she looked like a man, and I said, oh, you don't look like any man I know. Well, she's a beautiful girl today. She is? Yes, yes, she is. She was supposed to be with us today. She was with us this morning for the screening of The Bad and the Beautiful. She's beautiful. Cheryl Crane. Oh, I'd like to see her. She's big and beautiful? No, no. She's just beautiful. Not fat? No, she's tall and and quite beautiful. I wish Lana could have lived to see that. Oh, she did? No, she didn't. Uh, (laughs) I would never argue with you about anything. I saw Lana three days before she died, so I know she didn't live to see her daughter beautiful like that. I'm still living, and I haven't seen her beautiful like that. Like, I hope to God she is. Oh, my God. My mouth was open the entire time I was reading that. That's insane. <laughs> it's so mean. So, and she was a, beautiful. Like, on the Donahue show in the 80s, she's stunning. She's gorgeous. Wow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, when I read that, I was like, oh, my God. I need to immortalize that. I, I'm, I'm, my breath is taken away by that. Because, I mean, I guess maybe it's just like people are just like, ah, fuck it. We don't care. You know, uh, man, oh, man. Well, this movie is interesting. This movie is as complicated as the backstory behind it. It's interesting that Steven Spielberg picked this as one of his top five films, you know, as he's relaunching uh, TCM. And I wonder, like, what's behind that? Is that just like, I need more people to know about Douglas Sirk? Is that, I really believe this is one of the most defining films? This, to me, has, like, um, Jean Dielman qualities to it, right? I'm picking this because you don't know about it. And I think it's important for what it does. What do you think? I mean, I think that once all of us who love movies have a sense of Cirque and what he was like and what he wanted to do, it really does open up the way that we look at films, you know, like from John Waters or from, you know, Del Toro or from Todd Haynes. You know, Carol makes so much sense. Like it gets another dimension to it once you once you know and love Cirque. So I feel like he's kind of. I don't know, almost like a like a lens from a kaleidoscope that it's just really good to have if you love movies. I, I mean, and maybe that's part of it too, is like movies are about conversation. And I think that there are certain movies that exist to delight and entertain. And there are certain movies that are like this, that are worthy of exploration. Just a conversation about where it falls in the world, what it did, what it opened people's minds to. Because I do think that this movie... I was like, I don't know what we're going to talk about. I'm going to sit there with you and go like, eh, it was fine. I get what they were trying to do in certain parts. But the backstory, the research that I did after watching it was where I started to be like, oh, okay. And and the complicated nature. I think we've done this now. We've also told stories that have similarities to this. Um, and maybe I'd argue have been done better. But I'm I'm not worried about that at this moment. More than it's interesting to know like, wow, they were making movies like this. And how they got them in the seats, it might have been a little bit different, but they at least were trying to make big things. Like, I didn't I didn't know about this. I think that's why this movie is important. Like, oh, people were taking some big swings. Yeah. I mean, I love moments like this as a critic because it reminds me to never just dismiss something because I assume it's easy. Like, you don't know how stuff will change. When I read the reviews of Imitation of Life and they're like, oh, everybody's acting crazily. I don't know if I saw this movie in the morning and then wrote about it that night, if I would know. Right. Right. Like, how would you know for sure? And that kind of stuff drives me and scares me. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, because it's it's grappling with art is like a lifelong mission. It's a lifelong challenge. And to me, this is just such a great example of how art changes over the years and how like 
when a director can finally start telling you a little bit about what to look for, it cracks open a whole universe. And, and, and I'm glad to have had this conversation with you. I hope people watch this movie because I was surprised that you were so excited about it. And I'm glad to have gotten into it because it also just shows that like, you know, we're not that special. This stuff has been going on. Like, we, I think a lot of times we think like, oh, wow, we're the first type of people experiencing this or that and talking, having these conversations. But man, oh man, it is not true. <laughs> no, it is good to be humble, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we obviously know it was not received well, but it was a success. I mean, your gut, what do you think? Does this go into space? Oh, I mean, I would at least say that it is foundational if you love movies. I feel like all the arguments we made, made for Verhoeven are here and they're earlier and they're, and they're bold and they're uncompromising. I want to stick up for it, but I'm not sure I'm ready yet. But right now, I just want everybody to see this movie and see it, it, it tear it apart and chew on it later and think like, that seems weird. That's strange. That's uncomfortable. Like everything that we watch in a movie now and we're like, oh, that's problematic. That to me, that here, that's a moment of like, yeah, push further. What's underneath that? What is it trying to do? It's making you uncomfortable. Yes. As Circa's saying, Hollywood in America you know, they want the easy things. They don't want the emotionally complicated things. And that's exactly what this is. You know, he's giving you a thing that looks easy, but it is emotionally complicated. And he's asking you to lean into what makes you uncomfortable. I'm watching this movie and, you know, my immediate thought, of course, is like, boy, was this movie ahead of its time in talking about race. And then I think, well, eight years-ish later, we have, you know, guests who's coming to dinner. And I always feel like that movie was too late talking about race. Right. And, and then the obvious next thought is, well, when is the right time? And I was like, well, what movie is exactly right? What timing is right? And I realized I'm not sure we ever allow anything to feel right in the moment when it makes us uncomfortable. We always well, have to act a little superior to it and be like, eh, if you had done it this way or if you had done it that way. And it makes it, I think, really hard to be an artist. Well, I think we get caught up in this mentality of being perfect instead of just being, right? The idea of like wanting to do something, wanting to tell a story, it may not be the right way to do it or the best way to do it. And because we're constantly evolving, it's like you can't, you know, life is ever, ever moving. And I think if you're going to try to talk about society, if you're going to try to talk about things, there will be things that are always going to be true. But there are going to be things that are going to feel outdated. There are going to be things that, because even with, you know, guests is coming to dinner. Sure. Yes, it's a little outdated. But at the same time, too, probably open a lot of people's eyes to things. It's like, you know, I think that Will and Grace, you know, brought in gay culture to mainstream America in a way that was acceptable. Like, is it the best representation? I would argue it is a representation. It's a representation that was palatable at that moment. It, and they're great characters and they're funny. There are other people out there doing it differently, but it, you don't need this one. It's like, we. I think we look at these movies sometimes like a monolith. Like, well, they're not a monolith. It's, it's through one person's eyes about what they want to say and how they want to do it. Like, we don't have to have like the perfect way to attack systemic issues because ultimately it is in the eye of the beholder. And, you know, obviously Douglas Sirk is going to come in with his own perspective on it. And I think we get caught up in that, is it perfect? Not, wow, I applaud them for doing it. I love how you phrased that. Yeah. We find one flaw in a piece of art and we're like, well, you're dead. It's like, yeah, man, 
like it, it almost feels like we're siding with the wrong side to be shutting down stuff. Yeah. That's like taking stabs, trying to be bold, trying to make us uncomfortable. Absolutely. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation. I'm I'm really excited because I, I truly thought we will have nothing to talk about. And <laughs> um and I'm glad that we got to go a little bit deeper. And now we're gonna switch it up even uh more go in a completely different direction. Amy, what's on the docket? Is this going to be like the hardest 180 degree turn we've ever done like, in the show yes, ever? I think so. <laughs> well, good. I like that because we are the evil puppet masters. Yeah. And so we are doing a movie that I've actually never seen because I was too scared. Have you seen this movie? Nope. Oh my God. All right. So we are plunging in. We're plunging in, baby, because we are going to do Saw. That's right. We're going to scene saw or saw seen it, didn't seen it, <laughs> not going to saw it. Uh, I'm excited to see saw. Um, I think I've seen a saw, but I didn't see the saw. Um, so, I have seen the Chris Rock saw, but ooh. I never saw this saw because I was terrified to see this saw. And I don't like gore this usually. Saw, so. Yeah, this saw yeah. came out at the time of like hostile and stuff like that, or at least it feels to me like, and it was a time of like gross out horror and I was never really into that. Um, now let's see if I can handle it. We'll see. We're, <laughs> we're, we're going to go into the abyss together. I can't wait. Yeah, you know what, Paul? Let's lean into what makes us uncomfortable. I love it. Let's listen to the trailer. Someone there? I can hear you. Who is that? Who's in there? The jigsaw killer. Paul, find the path through the razor wire. Technically speaking, he's not really a murderer. He never killed anyone. Dr. Gordon, your aim in this game is to kill Adam. If you do not, then Diana will die finds ways for his victims to kill themselves. And now that little guy, that little puppet has become such a friend. Uh, Tobin Bell is like, <laughs> we now we know them all. Now it seems less scary. But Amy, next week, we're going to uh, seesaw and uh, get ready for Saw 10. And by the way, I want to tell everybody out there, I know we mentioned at the top of the show, but join the Unspooled Movie League. Uh, Amy and I have joined it. So have our producers. It is on Vulture. Go to the Vulture website and they have a um, a movie club. I have been doing this before like COVID. There was a thing called Fantasy Movie League and Vulture has kind of rebirthed it uh, on their site. And you can join us and we're trying to figure out uh, what movies will make the most money. And I, I took some weird shots. I'm excited. I'm excited for this. So you can join us just by saying that the group name is uh, Unspooled. Oh, it's odd. Maybe this is my chance to finally avenge myself, give myself some honor after you beat me every single year at the Oscars. You probably will take me down this one because I made some wild... I think the only way to win these things is to take wild choices, and I I really did. I took some wild ones. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, we'll see you next time for Saw. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo, and our MVP... 
Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy, and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, See the official API list of Unspooled Films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. 